I, a few years ago now, went bungee jumping. Has anyone dared to bungee jump? For those of you that aren't sure what it is, they basically tie a massive elastic band to your ankles and you jump off a bridge. That's pretty much what it is. We're in New Zealand at the time and there's the Ben Nevis, um, AJ Hackett bungee tower. Um, It's a 134 meter drop um, and you free fall for about eight and a half seconds. Um, And it starts off quite intimidating because you walk on this tiny little uh, narrow alleyway all the way out to where it's somehow suspended over this valley. So the valley drops away and you're walking on this tiny little metal platform as you walk out and you sit down and they have some music playing to get you in the mood and they they tie a big rubber band to your um, ankles and basically they say, don't look down. Whatever you do, don't look down because you'll never jump. So what do you do? Oh, that is a long way down. And um, and they go three, two, one, and you go on one, because if you don't go on one, you're never going to go. Tips, just in case later on this afternoon you decide to go for a bungee jump, just keep these things in mind. Now, to do that, to bungee jump, you need to have a certain amount of faith. But not faith in God. Not faith in God. Faith in the bungee cord. Faith in the people strapping the bungee cord to your ankles that they know what they're doing and that's not going to come loose. And faith that the other end of this giant elastic cord is attached firmly. And once your faith in those things is secure, you're good to go and you jump and have the most exhilarating and terrifying experience of your life. So my question is this, if Hebrews 11 that we've been looking at the last few weeks has a whole host of rock stars of the faith, in it. People that we should aspire to and stand on the shoulders of. If there was a modern day Hebrews 11 book of faith, hall of faith, should my endeavours in bungee jumping be included in it? Of course not. Absolutely not under any circumstances ever. Because for one, there's no faith in God Required. You might feel like you need faith in God, but your faith is really invested in these other things to be good. So my question this morning is, why is Samson in the Hall of Faith? In Hebrews 11, Samson, the judge of Israel, features there. Because his life was anything but having faith in God. And I'm going to explain that this morning. We're going to walk through. And I want you to be thinking, yeah, how, how is this guy actually mentioned many, many, many years later to say he is, he is one of the hallmarks of faith that we should champion to be like? So before we dive into some of the intricacies of his story, what you need to know is that the culture at the time was very chauvinistic. It was very male-dominated. So all the writing about it, all the thinking about it, all the engaging was highly um, uh, male-oriented. It's just part of the culture. So we need to factor that in as we apply that story to our own culture, which is very, very different. Um, It was treacherous. Trust was fleeting. You, you trust people, trusted people very sparingly. It was, it was nothing for your trust to be betrayed. It was a violent and barbaric culture. And we read some of these stories and we're like, we shudder. We're like, gosh, that is horrific to happen now. But it was back then. It was the, it was the norm. It was the done thing. And it was during a time when the reigning theology, so people's understanding of who God was, um, was your God is stronger if your God is tougher. 
So if your God destroys other armies, your God is worth listening to. If your God is loving and kind and all those things, forget it. Your God has no power. So that was the theology of the day. And not only does Samson's life mirror this, he is actually the most unworthy name to be in Hebrews 11, Hall of Faith. We're going to scoot through his story now and you are going to be convinced like I am that there is no way this guy should be in Hebrews 11. There's not even an exception. It's not even and he was so bad, but it's just pretty bad. And I'll, I'll prove it to you. We'll, we'll explore. So, so we're looking at why is he there and what we're going to see is that that even though he, he misstepped all the time, he made the wrong decisions with the wrong motives all the time, God used those missteps for God's plan. Because God's plan, was I don't know if you heard it in that reading, was to free Israel from the Philistines. So Israel had been put under the rule of the Philistines for 40 years. How old was Samson when he died? Have a guess. 40. 40. He was 40. And so, so, so God was at work doing something regardless of the mess that Samson created as Samson was doing it. So there's good news for us and our mess, right? That God is still able to use the mess to bring glory to him. So we, we start off by, by hearing that he was, he was called by God before he was even born. Before he was born, his, his mum, who was barren at the time, was promised by God to be given a son. And this son was to be chosen and set apart as a Nazarite, to have, never have his hair cut, never eat um, uh, unclean un, um, food, and never to drink wine. He was set apart for the purposes of God to free the nation of Israel. It was ordained on his life. And so when he gets to around like teenagehood, late teenagehood, he takes for himself a wife. And he takes for himself a wife out of the group of people that under no circumstances should you ever choose a wife from. I mean, things have changed now. But back then, he chooses a Philistine woman to be his wife. And the Philistines were the arch enemy of Israel. So he literally crosses the border and says, I'm going to choose a wife from here. And if you read through the Old Testament, that was the undoing of everywhere. Every king, whenever they chose a a wife who wasn't an Israelite, it was just about absolute disaster. But that's where he kicks off his story. It's like, oh, this this will be good. We'll put ourselves on the map. So he goes and chooses a, a wife. And then he's on his way to sort of an engagement feast. And he rocks up to the feast after some situations have happened. And he says to the 30 um, men that are, that are congregated there, he says, I have a riddle for you. And if you can solve the riddle, you win and I owe you. Uh, but if you can't, I win and you owe me. And I'll give you three days. Now, the problem with the riddle was he was the only person on the planet, except for the woman he'd chosen to be his wife, that knew the answer to the riddle. Because a lion had attacked him, he killed the lion, and later come back and there was honey in the lion. And so as he scoops out the honey and he's walking towards the honey feast, he's thinking on this riddle and this challenge that he's going to put before people. So he has this in mind. He and his wife are the only two people that could ever work this riddle out. It wasn't one that was known. They were the only two. Anyway, two and a half days come and the Philistine men are pestering his to-be wife, his engaged wife, about these things. And she gives in. And she tells them 
what the answer is. And they come to him and they say, we know the answer. And he goes, no, you don't. And they tell him the answer and they get it right. And he's devastated. He's very angry. So to to pay the debt of the challenge that he thought he was going to win, he goes and finds 30 other Philistines, beats them up, steals from them, and then gives it to the guys at the wedding feast. He's a quality bloke, is our Samson, right? Gee whiz. So, so he, he's not happy with his wife, but as a result, his dad is even less happy. And his dad says, yeah, we're taking your wife away from you. So he takes Samson's to wife or to be wife away from him. And he gets so mad, not at his dad, but at the Philistines for winning the riddle, for tricking his wife, for getting his dad to take away his wife, that he goes and you talk about a strategic uh, attack. He catches 300 foxes, ties their tails together, sets fire to them, and runs them through the produce and the vineyard and the grain stores of the Philistines to destroy all their food resources. I mean, that's a lot of hard work, isn't it, just to achieve those things. But that's, that's what was in his mind. He was so outraged by what had, what had conspired. As a result of that, the Philistines then go, well, we're going to take your wife and we're going to take your, uh, your wife's father. And they burnt them alive. They burnt them alive. And he goes on a blood-curdling rampage, killing every Philistine he can find. He's exhausted and he goes to hide in a cave. So he climbs up into the mountains and hides a cave to kind of get away from everything. The Philistines, as you can imagine, are livid. And so they convince the tribe of Judah, and Judah is one of the tribes of Israel, so convince the tribe of Judah to go and find Samson and capture him and bring him to the Philistine meeting where they can imprison him and, and finish this, this reign. So the people, some representatives of the tribe, tribe of Judah go and find um, Samson in a cave. And he says to them, well, all you need to do to constrain me is, is tie my hands together. Now, Samson, in case you don't know, is the strongest man the world has ever seen because of the length of his hair. Because he was Nazarite, he was chosen by God. So God granted him this strength with his hair. So as long as his hair doesn't get cut. But he says to them, yeah, just tie my wrists with this certain sort of rope and I won't have a chance. So they do. And then they take him to the Philistine meeting. And of course, he just like wool just pops it open and goes and kills everyone that wasn't of the tribe of Judah, every Philistine that was at this meeting. Do you see how this is getting worse and worse and worse? It's not good. Once he's finished that, there's this really quirky part where it says he's really thirsty. And so he has a whinge to God. And he's always like, God, I've done all this work for you. Um, I'm really thirsty. And God responds by cracking open a rock and water pours out of the rock. So his, his thirst is quenched. And that takes us all the way through to chapter 15, verse 20, when we read these words. There's not many words, but it's telling. Samson then led Israel for 20 years in the day of the Philistines. So it's kind of like they put, put on the brakes like, okay, uh, 20 years later. So we just jump from all that intensity when he's around the age of 20 to break, jump 20 years later. And then the next story, which is when he's 40, not 20, so 20 years later, it says that he went and laid with a prostitute. 
So he's clearly learnt a lot as judge and leader and spiritual advisor of the Israel people for 20 years. The next we hear about him is he finds a prostitute. And she's from the nation of the Philistines. Yes, Samson winning. So, so he takes this woman into a room and the Philistines uh, um, the leadership get hear word of this and they think we'll lie in wait when he comes out in the morning we'll ambush him attack him and take him prisoner and so he hears about this from some some way and leaves in the middle of the night and goes to the city gates that he's in and rips the city gates off their hinges to show his disgust for that city so you're starting to get a feel for the kind of bloke he was he was it was quite it was quite different but then he meets Delilah. Delilah. Samson and Delilah. Delilah. He, he falls in love with this woman. And this woman, again, is a Philistine. And she is um, kind of co-opted by the leadership of the Philistines to work out what his weakness is. And then those passages from chapter 16, verses 4 to 20, are some of the most ridiculous in all of Scripture. If you read them, you're like... Was he mad? What was going on? Because she went to him and she said, what's the source of your strength? And he said, well, tie me up like this. So she tied him up like that and then called in the Philistines into the room and he broke free and destroyed them in in the room, right? And then like a couple of nights later, the same scenario takes place. It's just a different thing that Samson says, no, the source of my strength is this. Four times, folks. Four times his wife brutally betrays him until the last time when he tells her the source of his strength, just cut my hair. And she does. And they do attack again. And this time he has no strength. This time they they, they wrap him up and they take him away and he's done. So Samson, Hall of Faith candidate, how are you feeling about that? Didn't have any character. He wasn't wise. He was uncommitted in his marriage. He had rage issues. He wasn't a team player. He didn't care about his country or his nationality or his nation's reputation. He was a maverick. He did everything his way. He was impulsive and he was filled with revenge. Now, I want you to chat for a minute with the person around you. How do you think he ended up in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11? How did he end up there? Just have a bit of a, a share if there's people around you. Have a bit of a think about it. Just for a minute, one minute. Just have a bit of a ponder. How does that work? Time's up. I'm not going to ask for answers. Um, I found this one tricky. Why on earth would he be in there? And his story concludes... So I haven't left anything out. I've not skirted over it. I've actually made him look a little bit better than he actually was. And this is how the, the story ends. Then Samson prayed to the Lord. So, so at this stage, he's been bound. He has no strength. He knows he's headed for certain death. He's had his eyes gouged out by those who attacked him. So he's been re- rendered completely powerless And Samson prayed to the Lord, Sovereign Lord, do you remember me? You only say that if you think God's forgotten you, right? So it's probably been a long time between prayers. Please, God, strengthen me just once more 
and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for what? My two eyes. <laughs> Not even what you want to do or your kingdom or who these horrible Philistines are to you. They took my eyes. Give me the strength to have revenge on that. The, the decency. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood. Um, he said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all his might and down came the temple. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. And that was the turning point for Israel reclaiming their ownership of the land and, and being elevated again. But his motive wasn't even to glorify God. It wasn't so that Israel would triumph again and get back on top. It was justice because his eyes had been taken from him. Samson wasn't about faith in God for God's glory at all. His life was about himself. But God worked through him. Because God's agenda was the salvation of his people, freeing them from the Philistines. And he's like, it doesn't matter what you do, Samson, I am going to enable my purposes to take place through you, regardless of how miserable or decrepit or evil or fallen you are. You see, when our faith is more about God than it is about us, we are fulfilled in partnering with God in these things. We get what Samson missed. He never got a, a, ever a sense of he was partnering with God. It was, it was the Samson show. And when we look at Samson's life, we should see God's greatness, not Samson's weakness. How great God was to use that mess to achieve his purposes. You ever feel like your life's a mess and circumstances are a mess? And it could be easy to say, God's not here. Where is God? But God, God is there. So... Why is the story important at all? Why does Samson get a mention? I think it's because the New Testament writers saw a redeemed story of Jesus in the life of Samson. And people knew the Samson story. People that would have been uh, reading this primarily, they would have known the Samson story. And so putting Samson in there was the New Testament writers getting people to think about Jesus, not Samson. See, they were both Samson and Jesus. They were both chosen from birth, set aside for God's purposes from birth. They were set aside for holiness to bring increased holiness. The middle 20 years of their life is completely and utterly missing. Like, what happened then? It just, it just seems to vanish. They both took a Gentile bride. Samson took the Philistines. Jesus took our ugly mugs. It took us. He, he, he took us as beloved and committed to. Both destroyed an army. Samson went against the lion that attacked him. Jesus went against Satan in the desert and disarmed him. They both attended their wedding for their first public appearance. They both struck out against Israel's armies I mean, Samson's rampage against the Philistines, but Jesus' campaign against the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They both took this on as, as, a, as a role that God had given them. They were both betrayed and deserted by the general public. They were both betrayed and ultimately um, uh, deeply left by someone they had chosen to trust. Samson in Delilah, Jesus in Judas. And the death they endured was for the sake of others and for ultimately the triumph of God. 
And so when the Hebrew writer puts Samson in there, all of this would have locked into place for someone of Jewish origin who knew all the stories. Are they pointing to Jesus, not to Samson? Samson's story culminates at the same point that Jesus' life did. A death welcomed for the sake of others. For Samson, his sacrifice was for Israel. For Jesus, his sacrifice was for all of humankind, all of us. Samson ended the reign of the Philistines. Jesus ended the reign of sin and death. And in turn, he hands us his eternal freedom. And if you've accepted Christ, and I say this because we've been around church for a long time, but maybe you haven't. Maybe you haven't accepted the grace of Christ. Maybe it's not owned by you. It's not yours. Like, I'm familiar with it. I, I know God loves me. I know I'm forgiven. But, but have I received it? Maybe, maybe you're in that space. You see, if you have been saved, you have nothing to fear. You don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear evil. You don't need to fear COVID. You're saved. You're saved with this wonderful gift to pass on to others. And if you're unsure whether you're saved, if right now you're, you're feeling that awkward feeling of like, oh, I hope no one's looking at me. No one's looking at you. Good stress. But if, you, if you're thinking that, then today, literally today, all of that can change. It can shift for you. Today you can shore up your salvation because you are not saved by your belief or the strength of your belief. That will not save you. It cannot save you. What Jesus did on the cross for you is what saves you. That's what frees you. And I'm going to lead you in a prayer in that just shortly. But when the writer of, of Hebrews put Samson's name down there, just nestled in these, this list of other spectacular faith-filled followers of God, it wasn't so people would emulate Samson. It was so that people would remember and meet Jesus. C.S. Lewis, I don't know if you, you know, you know C.S. Lewis, right? The world knows C.S. Lewis. He was a Christian. And um, when I was 16, 17, I was part of a youth group, and that youth group decided to put on a play. And because we were uh, able to move and breathing, we were in that play. It had nothing to do with our inability to act whatsoever. And the play they brought to us was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Now, to a 16, 17-year-old kid, I was like, that's a kid's story. This is a bit weird. Uh, but anyway, my mates are doing it. Let's jump in. So we did it, and as we're doing it, and we're acting out and stuff, somebody who was a, a lot wiser and down the track than me said to me, you know it's a Christian book, don't you? No. It's about a lion, a witch, and a wardrobe, and a bunch of kids that are as clueless as me in this whole deal. I, it's, it's not a Christian book. They, they said it is. It depicts how God interacts with humanity and his love and where he wants to take us and, and ultimately what the gospel looks like. And I went... No, it does not. But I had to find out for myself, so I went and read the book. It does. <laughs> Who saw that coming? It, it actually, it does. They were right. Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, and I think there's, is there nine books all up. He, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia so that people would discover Jesus in a story. Lewis wrote it not so we'd remember Aslan the lion, but so that we would meet Jesus, the king. It's actually the story of Narnia is the story of the gospel. To remind people of Jesus. To help them enter in to Jesus' story. To have Jesus introduced to them and renewed 
in them. That's why Samson's name is in Hebrews. To do that for all the people listening, but to do that for us today. That's what God wants for you. He wants to introduce you to his son Jesus. He wants to renew his story in you again. And he wants your, his story through you to draw others closer to Jesus. Because you just live in it and you love it and you love Jesus. And out of that, God will do wonderful things. You see, throughout the whole Old Testament, Jesus' presence can be discovered through every kind of signpost and every character points to Christ. And when we discover that, we're led to the cross where everything changed. It's just like through your story and my story, others can find Jesus and through that be led to the cross to the forgiveness and the freedom of Christ and everything be changed. And so I want to pray for some of you maybe here today that your salvation be secured up in Christ. And then I want to pray for all of us that the story we live from here, as we live out the story of life with Jesus, others would see that and find the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, it is such a privilege to be here today and sit under your word and hear from your spirit as you communicate these things to us. And I thank you so much. And Lord, there may be some people here today, friends, family, part of of our church, who, who have struggled to take on salvation for themselves, who are gripped with fear that their, their, their belief in you hasn't seemed to pierce yet, that have always wondered if they'll ever make it into heaven. And Lord, you convince us again through the broken, broken story of Samson that, that it has nothing to do with our ability or how good we are or what we try and do, but everything to do with your unchanging grace and kindness toward us, that you want to save us. And so Lord, rush into us with your spirit now. And transform us and change us and save us and heal us and take away our sin. And Lord, as you reside more deeply and strongly in us, use that to change the world of those around us. Our children, our grandchildren, our neighbours, those who we meet. Lord, bring your transformation to them through us. May they see you in us and be led to your cross to find the same freedom and salvation we have found in you. We ask these things in your wonderful and almighty name. And everybody agreed and said, Amen.